0: Welcome to The Story Talks Back. Almost everything that we remember, think about, or imagine is a story. Stories entertain us, inform us, and even define us. They have upsides, and they have downsides. This podcast explores the power of story in every aspect of our lives. I'm Dave Stanton. Thank you for joining us. In the 1970s, John Gardner was a star in the world of literary fiction, often mentioned in the same breath as Norman Mailer, John Updike, and Kurt Vonnegut. He won huge acclaim for his 1971 novel Grendel, a postmodern retelling of the Beowulf legend. And in 1976, he won the National Book Critics Circle Award for October Light the story of two elderly Vermont siblings locked in a war of wills inside their ramshackled home. Gardner was also a leading force in the movement to establish creative writing in college curricula. For over 20 years, he taught writing at universities across the country, providing crucial early guidance to Raymond Carver, Charles Johnson, and many other notables. Gardner published early works by Joyce Carol Oates, William Gass, and others, in MSS, the literary magazine he founded in the early 1960s and revived almost 20 years later. And his two books, On Craft and the Writing Life, The Art of Fiction and On Becoming a Novelist, are now considered classics. But as quickly as Gardner's star had risen, it began to fall. In 1978, he published On Moral Fiction, a literary manifesto in which he criticized many of the most famous writers of his generation. Decrying tinny and commercial fiction, Gardner called for writing that affirms life. A year earlier, he had also faced charges of plagiarism over his book-length biography of Geoffrey Chaucer. Born and raised in rural Batavia, New York, Gardner was the oldest of three children, and his parents' favorite, but his life changed forever on a fateful day in April, 1945. Gardner, then 11, was driving a tractor, pulling a cultipacker, a large device for flattening soil with his six-year-old brother, Gilbert riding on back. The tractor stopped suddenly, but the cultipacker kept moving and Gilbert was thrown beneath the steel rollers. Gardner was haunted by this tragic accident throughout his life retelling the events in his powerful short story, Redemption. In August 1982, Gardner was a lead instructor at the Breadloaf Writers Conference in Middlebury, Vermont, an elite gathering where he had taught many times before. I interviewed Gardner in two sessions at the conference, conversations that would become his last interview. On September 14, 1982, just four days before he was to be married for the third time, Gardner died in a still mysterious motorcycle accident on a country road not far from his Pennsylvania home. Sections of my conversations with Gardner appear in this tribute, enhanced but still sometimes difficult to hear, as well as new interviews with some of the people who knew Gardner best. In order of appearance, they are novelist and educator Ron Hansen, author of The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford, and Hitler's niece, Susan Thornton, Gardner's fiance when he died, and author of the memoir On Broken Glass, Loving and Losing John Gardner, Joel Gardner, John's son and creator of the documentary film about his father, Sunlight Man, Carolyn Forchet, award-winning poet and memoirist whose books include The Country Between Us and What You Have Heard is True, Liz Rosenberg, Gardner's second wife and co editor with him of the journal MSS. She has published over 35 books, including poetry collections, young adult fiction, and children's picture books. We begin with Gardner speaking on August 27, 1982, in his room at Breadloaf, near his typewriter with pipe in hand.
1: really good has to be passionate, and the question is, what is the passion of our time? Um, if you if you just had a divorce, the passion you feel at that second is the passion of loss or betrayal or, or whatever, um, and that can make a book, but, but if you keep getting the passion of fiction out of little things in your life, you're never, never going to get very much passion not, not everything be very great.
2: He had a real electric personality. I don't know if people who read him can understand exactly how dynamic and char- charismatic he was. His presence, and that enabled him to say almost
3: anything and get away with it. I, if if you were in a room and he walked into it, suddenly the atmosphere changed, and people would be like, "What happened? Something's different." You know, even without seeing him walk in, somehow the air was just different. Um, he, he had an amazing focus. He could make you feel like the only person in the room. Uh, I don't know, the, the air was more rarefied. It was just an amazing experience. It's
4: hard to say what he was looking for,
3: but he was definitely looking
4: uh, for more than most of us do. And I think therefore willing to upend marriages, to take financial risks, to take physical risks, um, Bad behavior on horseback and thunderstorms and motorcycles and driving a car like it really mattered uh, to pass some old farmer on a blind curve at 145 miles an hour when, you know, you might all die. Um, I guess it would be an understatement to say he wasn't careful.
5: In hindsight, I think he was one of the most brilliant people I've ever met, I've ever had the privilege of talking to you know he had he had a kind of um intellect that is very rare he was deeply and widely read but also not only in literature but in philosophy i suspect in theology as well so so he had a a mind that was capable of the synthesizing ideas and you know he was able to marshal arguments that i hadn't I hadn't witnessed anyone doing before.
6: I believe he was kind of the New York literary world's darling because, you know, they sort of portrayed him as like a pig farmer from Iowa, which he was not. But his family did do dairy farming in upstate New York. And, you know, they'd been a solid Republican family, though John was not that. Um, So he was the outsider and the outsider can get away with a fair amount. And he was not afraid to speak his mind. That was also a family trait. Apparently his uh, grandfather used to go to church with a big like walking stick. And when the minister said something that he didn't like or disagreed with, he would hammer that big stick on the floor and call out, that's a damn lie.
0: Gardner's first passion was always writing and he devoted himself to the craft with extraordinary energy. Often he worked on scholarly books and essays as part of his career as a medievalist at the same time that he wrote fiction.
4: He would go to that desk, you know, the party would end at two, you know, see the last people off, and he'd go up and write for two or three hours. So, it was, and, and his study then in, in southern Illinois was um, on what had been, a, it was a glassed-in sun porch, and there's a glass door between that and my bedroom. So I was just aware of the sound of typing, and you know, at all hours, he would go for two to three days at a time, and then basically just put a pillow on his typewriter and put his head down on it. But it it, it oddly didn't seem like hard work, in, in this odd way, he was he's was very interested in it. You know, it was like he was like a, he was cheating. He was like getting away with playing. You know, and 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 all the other grownups were doing their their up thing, but he was kind of getting away with something there.
6: He would give me books because he. He loved having a reader, you know, and he I was very honored that he trusted me as a reader. And sometimes I would I would joke that, you know, you can write faster than I can read, John. (laughs) But after every book, he would say, that's it. I'm done. I'm washed up. I can never write again. I'll never write again. And then one time I remember he took up oil painting. He was going to do oil painting another time. He was going to do woodworking and he made quite a beautiful like cedar trunk for my my niece, and that apparently, um, you know, when we weren't together, he had decided he was going to raise goats, I think, something like that. So <laughs> they broke out of the barn. I mean, you know, it only lasted so long, and then the next idea would kind of catch him up, and then he would start writing again. I just think that was that was his way, but he was a writer to the core.
2: It's hard to imagine how many books you would have had he lived all this time, he was forty-nine years old when he died, and has—I don't remember how many books, but at least forty—and it's astonishing. His—he was, he was so prolific.
4: Later on, I think it—it uh, it became a compulsion, and you know, the, the jury is still out. I mean, there are plenty of artists who who work steadily every day and set hours and. Um, you know, that that also gets the job done. But he felt compelled and he felt he was didn't have the same amount of time that maybe other people might have. That's something that Carl Dennis mentioned when I interviewed him for my film. He seemed to think that he had to get it done.
0: Gardner was also a devoted teacher who influenced hundreds, maybe thousands of students. He taught creative writing at California State University, Chico, Southern Illinois University, Carbondale, Bennington College, Binghamton University, and other schools.
1: I I like what I do. I like the fact that I'm a teacher. I like the fact that all those years when I could have made more money by not teaching, I, for reasons that I didn't understand, kept teaching. I value the fact that all these years when I could have taught only graduate students, I always taught freshmen.
2: Maybe out the more beginning you were, the better he liked it, because he thought he could stop each from doing stupid things. And part yeah. of it was, he was available to all kinds of writing, every kind of genre and a story idea. Um, but he always would pinpoint exactly what you should be doing within that genre and what you should avoid. Uh, He just had a real mastery of all the uh, styles and types you could do.
6: I've known him to go out on a weekend in a snowstorm to meet with a student who had some kind of life schedule or work schedule that just didn't allow them to come in any other time. He was infinitely generous to young writers who had been his students or had not been his students and who had maybe sent them manuscripts. In the hope that he would either comment or, you know, make a recommendation or maybe write him a book. He never said no. He just never said no. Our house was piled with manuscripts from students and writers, young and old, who needed, needed help.
3: Well, when he, when he came to Binghamton, he, he was a professor of English literature. I, I took the degree. I stayed on after he died and did the PhD in English literature with a concentration in creative writing. So I benefited from that in that I did a master's where I wrote a novel for a master's thesis. And then I did another novel for my PhD dissertation. So I benefited from that program he had created. Um, and I think it did, you know, set the tone for many other academic programs of that kind. Um, it, it sort of showed that it could be done and that there is, um, there is value in, in um, trying to teach writing as a craft.
4: He was a medievalist with a- PhD in creative writing from Iowa, but mainly he was a medievalist because that's what got him jobs. He didn't get jobs teaching creative writing, but he, he would always figure out a way to sneak it in and get it done. I remember him saying one time how one of the great joys of his life was that he carried around in his head the experience of reading probably, you know, 10,000 stories that would never be published that for, not even that they weren't worthy of it, but just people drift off into marriage and careers and things like that. And those stories don't make it out into the world. And it was just one of the things that was sort of incredible to him is that there was all this work out there, all this literature out there, and he wanted to bring that out of people
3: he would read stuff anybody gave him. And he would read the whole thing. If somebody gave him a novel of 200 pages, he would read all 200 pages. Some writing teachers read the first 10 and then say, okay, I'm done, but you really should blah, blah, you know? And and so he would make himself available in a very open and honest way. And then anybody who could overcome their shyness of, OMG, here's this famous author, he he would give them a direct, honest, helpful critique.
0: Did you have any sense of what, the source of his passion for teaching was?
6: I think it came partly through his parents. You know, they had kind of taught him. His mom was a teacher, his father was a farmer, but also um, sort of an occasional visiting um, minister. And so there was this sense of what John used to call stewardship. And he truly believed that he had an obligation in terms of stewardship. He used to joke that, you know, he would be condemned to hell forever if he didn't, you know, help every student who needed help. And so it was really a sense of mission, a sense of having a calling. He obviously at a certain point, he didn't need to teach financially. And it took up time that I think he would have loved to be spending on his own writing, but he really had this intense sense of um, responsibility.
2: My sense of it is that he uh, accidentally killed his brother Uh, in a farming accident and uh, he was kind of guilt ridden for that and uh, by that and so that's part of the reason he was so prolific and I can remember him saying he'd finished a book and looked up to heaven and said oh god is that enough Um, and the same thing is true of taking care of other writers uh, especially fledgling writers that was his way of uh, making up for the it wasn't a crime
3: it was just an accident but he felt criminal because of it his mother not to me but i i was told that his mother once said that it was almost like he was living two lives Hmm. um and and that's partly because of the death of his younger brother gilbert he was driving a tractor to bring a heavy piece of farming equipment back from one farm to another and that should not have been done by three children it should have been done by uh, two adults It just happened that the three children were entrusted with this task and it was too much for them. And the tragedy was that Gilbert was killed. And um, maybe he was trying to make up for that to do the work of two people. I don't know, that may be too simplistic. I say this
4: not with love. They made a career of grieving the death of Gilbert. They sent him the number of white roses each year on the anniversary of Gilbert's death that would have been Gilbert's age had he lived. For so many years that my mother would know they were coming, she would be at the house, she would receive them and she would put them in the trash. There was a time that I was at the dining room table uh, in Batavia with my sister, very young, there's this one tiny little room off of the kitchen, which is the dining room, and we're all squeezed in around it. And there's an extra place set at the table for Gilbert. And my sister accidentally drops her fork on the floor and because we're all packed in so tightly, she can't even she's a child, but she can't even get down on the floor to get it. So she reaches over to the next place setting, Gilbert's, to take the fork. and Priscilla says, "No, honey. That's Gilbert's fork. I'll get you another The thing that's so fabulously ghastly about this, all of this, is that they actually thought that they were all in it together. They're sending flowers to dad. They don't think that's an accusation. They don't think that's pointing a gun at his face. They think that's, we so miss your brother and I know you do too. That whole small town, bullshit, let's enact our grief together
6: thing. This date in April would roll around or even get near it. You know, I mean, almost as soon as he hit the month of April, he would have times when he would just kind of lie on the sofa and shake. It was that, you know, the trauma was that deeply rooted not to lay that on him, but they would, you know, they would celebrate Gilbert's birthday every year. And they'd have like a a birthday cake and everybody would cry. And there was John sitting there, you know, reliving it. So um, they wanted to be kind. They were very loving people, uh, but they were suffering. And in some ways they couldn't hide their suffering. I mean, I think his father just fell to pieces and, you know, just started, I think riding his motorcycle in fact all over the countryside coming home really late you know the mom was weeping what
1: about um Is that-, that was really exercise yeah. that i was advised by a psychologist to, to write the story and i had a lot of uh, trouble with my head. things like as you know I'm driving down the road, right, and I see this, this guilt scene, this old traumatic experience, it's so vividly that I can't see the road. Hard as I try to concentrate, I can't I can't break out of the vision and see the road. That's very dangerous, and you had to the break and pray. And uh, that had happened to me quite often. And this guy said, write the story, and he said it, you I'd kill him. Terrifying. It was immensely painful, right? When you write a story, you have, to, you have to see it in your mind over and over and over, and copy it down, pick away details, take off the ones that are not important, to finally get it. And it really did work. And you actually do see your way through it. If you just keep staring at it staring at it and copying it down, like, like the scientists, like, you're actually sort of like the vivisectionist and the fraud. Kind of and, and when you're all done, <laughs> you're going okay.
0: A pivotal event in Gardner's career was the publication of On Moral Fiction, his controversial critique of much contemporary American writing. Drawn from a manuscript Gardner had begun when he was still unpublished, the book was widely discussed, leading to a New York Times Magazine cover story and an appearance on The Dick Cavett Show.
1: There's no doubt that I offended very many people that book. I think I offended... uh academics who who devoted their careers and, and bet their lives on, on, on metafiction, let's say, or, or certain certain writers who, whom I would not primarily approve. I think also there are a great many people who really love those writers that I find trivial, and I hurt their feelings. And when you get through adding up all the people I've offended, uh, be
4: I happened to be with him in New York City, and there he was meeting the editor from Basic Books who was going to publish on moral fiction. And I just remember feeling sick. It's like, this is such a bad idea. And part of what I felt was just the simple problem that, and those times, Reagan era, right? Falwell had the moral majority. You know, you, you're, you're just stepping in it. You know, this, this, is, this is like, this is, you, you got your foot in a bear trap as soon as you say moral fiction, because it's equated with this other stuff that has nothing to do with what you're talking about. Um, I don't know that we had that conversation, but I think I did with him. Don't you see that this isn't gonna go well? And then on top of that, there was the whole thing of, you know, attacking I think with um, the best of intentions, people by name, you know, sentences by paragraph, characters, you know, whatever. And that did end up being something very costly. Now, w- whether, you know, it ultimately matters, what people think of you is obviously a job for future generations, but he certainly pissed off everybody. And as Bill Gass said, it was even worse than he pissed off people that he talked about in the book. You know, he disparaged, the uh, you know, Doctorow and a lot of, you know, really popular and, and, and good writers. He pissed off people by not putting them in the book. I mean, people would go around and say, Well, he didn't he didn't say anything about me, and they're mad about that.
6: People are afraid to have strong opinions, you know. So even if they have them, they wouldn't want to stand up and say them. And of course, John really paid a heavy price for doing that. But I think historically, artists who do stand up and say what they believe in and dare to comment on contemporary art that they almost always get nailed one way or another.
2: But it felt kind of careless on his part that he was putting down writers who were his friends, people he knew very well, and uh, damaging their rec- reputation or kind of pointing fingers at them. Uh, I don't think that was, it was fair or necessary. It was the kind of stuff you should say at cocktail parties, but you don't put it in print.
4: He had this night, a dinner party at Bennington College where all these writers are, and he goes around the room, and it's in the period when he's doing On Moral Fiction, and he tells everybody in the room what's wrong with their work, you know, down to like the, the beginning of chapter six and this kind of thing, and then Alan chooses wife just was so appalled, and she said, I love you. I think you're one of the greatest writers in America today, but you're a, a despicable human being, and... <laughs> He said, Marjorie, 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 I can revise my fiction. I can't revise my life.
6: Well, you know, the truth is he was also very supportive of the writers of his generation. You know, people forget that he worked with and absolutely supported John Irving and Tim O'Brien and Ron Hansen and Carolyn Forche. I mean, it's not like he was trying to just pick on the big guys. Um, I I think he was, again, he was trying to look at a big picture of what he thought was a trajectory for the literature of our time. I said to him, you know, John, this is it for you for at least 10 years, at least 10 years before they'll forgive you. But you'll get old enough at a certain point, and then you'll be sort of like that, that figure, that older figure, and then you'll write something and they'll be willing to really read the work again without having to keep going back to the same, you know, poisoned well. But he, he didn't live long enough to see that happen. That's what I really believe happened. He simply didn't live long enough to outlive the animosity.
1: What I was doing is right. I mean, what I say in Unmoral Fiction is true. Everybody knows it's true. Bill Gas and I, who are very, very close friends, even though we're on opposite sides of the debate, we were talking in Cincinnati I think at the end of the, the, end of the, the debate, between uh, somebody in the audience asked, uh, in a hundred years, which position yours and Mr. Gardner's uh, will prevail? And Bill guess said, Mr. Gardner's position will prevail, as it always has. I think it's interesting. You know, um, he's not against my position, he just wants to be free to do something else.
0: When Gardner arrived at the Breadloaf Writers Conference in the summer of 1982, where he was one of the lead instructors, he kept up a full tilt pace. Though writers are discouraged from working at the conference, he brought his bulky typewriter and a pile of works in progress.
3: Uh, there was a certain, there was a, a driven, a driven intense go, go, go kind of feeling, yes. Um, he was, he was involved in his last project which was to um, translate in um, the Gilgamesh epic and write a critique. He was finishing the, he was looking at the galleys for um, becoming a novelist. So there was a, lots of work. And yet he was also a bread loaf, um, interacting, staying up late, you know, smoking, drinking, talking about politics. Yes, it was like the pedal to the metal, fast and furious.
2: There was a always a sense of him as living this nocturnal life. A lot of times you wouldn't see him until 10 o'clock at night at Treman. And he'd stay up there until four or five in the morning. Um, only hardy folks could stay drinking with him. Uh, I was always one who left in a reasonable hour.
6: I mean, there was a lot of, you know, sort of star worship that went on at Rudloaf. You know, he, he had that that head of long kind of ice, blonde, goldish hair he was like a, a walking beacon in a way it was hard to mess with. and he looked a bit otherworldly i think he looked like you know maybe something out of tolkien mixed with prince valiant or something and he, he actually was rather shy and nervous around crowds that's the only time that in my life with him i i saw him drink was you know because he'd get nervous you get nervous to be around people and to have, you know, be in situations where he was expected to hold forth.
0: At Breadloaf that year, Gardner took a stand for writing that looks beyond limited personal problems to embrace political and social concerns. Inspired by the work of Carolyn Forche, who attended the conference that year, and others, once more Gardner was swimming upstream, taking unpopular positions at a time when he was already viewed as a kind of pariah.
1: I keep getting. Into- traps, you know, like people keep thinking that I'm saying um, I don't care about technique. And that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is here at Breadloaf, where technique is is, is reached such a high level, I I see story after story after story, publishable, and I don't see one, well that's not true, I see very few stories that seem to me really important for the world as it is right this minute.
3: He felt it was very important to talk to writers about the importance of writing, not just technique. You know the the pre- people who had paid the money to come to Breadloaf, they wanted a you know A B C D, you know put this in your story, get this agent, talk to this publisher, get this contract. I mean, you get the contract. That's kind of what they wanted, and so and John could deliver that kind of information, but he chose instead on his last lecture to talk about politics and political writing. And he was basically he just said basically if you're not writing politically, you're not writing. And he basically talked for. 15 minutes, when people expected an hour long lecture about technique and how to do it and, you know, who to schmooze with in New York. And, and people were furious. I mean, they paid a lot of money to hear advice from this famous author, and they didn't like what they were hearing. And it, was a, it, it turned into a very um, angry confrontation between him and, and some of the other contributors at the conference. It
5: was quite an event. That day, John's talk in particular, and it was the sort of buzz of breadloaf after that. It was what everyone was talking, arguing about, actually. Right. And, and I realized that I was the focus uh, uncomfortably the focus of something that was not that i full I didn't fully understand
2: it, it seemed like he was bidding adieu to a lot of things. He uh, his his talk in craft was more about politics than it was about craft, and I can remember say him saying, "You can go to a lot of the other teachers here for information about writing. Go to Ron; he'll he'll help you." Out. And uh, but it was like he was passing the baton uh, to other people.
4: He was riled up. Yeah, you know, he spoke a lot about if you're not writing politically, you're not writing. Um... And there and I, I'm I'm not saying that these names to lay blame, but it was a, it at all in any way because hey but there were writers there, Carolyn Forche was one, um, and a couple of others I think too, who were very committed and very willing to allow the the moral sensibility and the 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 political outrages and, and, and injustices of the world to seep into and flow through their writing in a way that, that my dad was ready to embrace after all of those years of not doing that. He, he always wanted fiction to change the world. He wanted it to make us better people. And I don't think, I I think that at a certain point he realized that, you know, if you're not on the side, you're not, you're, you're not on the right side. And he wanted to be on the right side. He wanted to make a difference.
6: That was the year Carolyn Forshay was there, and she was reading her poetry, which was extremely political, and she was being attacked, as she has always been attacked, when she tries to raise these uh, larger political issues, talk about things that are extremely uncomfortable and difficult to talk about. And I think a lot of what he did at Redloaf actually was a personal um, act of kind of support and rescue for Carolyn. My guess is if she hadn't happened to have been there, he would have been ranting about something else entirely.
5: I was reading my poems. I wasn't asking them to write similarly. I wasn't, I I didn't have a, a sense of being polemical in any way. John did have. John was committed to I suppose injecting a kind the certain kind of seriousness that he desired into literary, back into literary culture you, you know he was I, I, I could be wrong it it felt like he was more much more on a mission than I was.
0: in our interview and elsewhere during the conference, Gardner also reflected on loss and the uncertainty of life. his father whom Gardner called his model in our discussions, had suffered a devastating stroke, and Gardner himself had undergone colon cancer surgery just a few years earlier. really,
1: really worst thing a the loss of childhood. It's increasingly, you see that Not only all those beautiful experiences you had as a child, a 20 year old, a 30 year old, a 40 year old, whatever, are over forever. They'll never happen again. You I know, mean, you always think, you know, I'll have it again, but, but you never did. But even everybody you love that you could have talked to about it is dead. That's, that's the horror. That's, that's so powerful and for right?
2: There was a lot of questions of about death. And I can remember once at a dinner party, we were all sitting around and we talked about manifestations of death. And a woman talked about how when her grandmother died, her photo fell off the wall. And uh, it was, in some ways, I remember after his death, some people kind of examined the area where the motorcycle had gone off of the road as if John had deliberately steered it. Eventually they thought he probably tried to avoid an animal and went careening off, but there was a real worry in people's parts that John was not quite right
5: in his last year. The last night before we left, For some reason, we were standing in the middle of the road, the road that divides the inn from Treeman Cottage. It's a paved road. But, you know, at night in Vermont, at least there wasn't any traffic on it. And I remember vividly, he, he had his pipe. He was wearing a white fisherman sweater. He was standing in the middle of the road, and I was congratulating him on his upcoming marriage. I was getting ready to say goodbye, and I hoped that everything went well. And he said something that I'll never forget for the rest of my life. He said, oh, I'm not going to be married. And I said, but you're engaged. And he said, yes, yes, I'm engaged. Uh, I love Susan. And but i just i'm not going to be married i just know i'm not and and he said because i'm because i'm not going to be alive to be married so i said i thought he was talking about i thought he was talking about suicide so i started to try to talk him out of it he said, oh, no, no, I'm not going to kill myself. No, no, no. He said, and he was almost jovial. He was saying, no, 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 I'm, no, nothing like that. And he said, I, I'm, he said I'm Welsh. We know these things. Yeah. And I said, no, you know what, John? You, what do you know? And he said, I, I just know that I'm somehow not going to be alive soon. I just know it. And I said, well, I think I said something like, John, you know, this this is just, um, this is something arising from your subconscious. This is not, I didn't know what to say. What's interesting is I could still see him in the road. It's very vivid, very precise. I can see his hair. I can see, as he was saying this, it was, um, very lucid, very, and he wasn't upset by it. He was kind of twinkling, you know. This...
2: I remember him saying that um, a lot of members of his family had the gift of second sight, of actually of seeing ghosts or seeing the future. Um, and I don't remember if he said he did that, but uh, there were several members, he, people he mentioned, and I think his father was one of those people kind of extrasensory
3: perception. On September 4th, um, we were at the house in uh, Susquehanna, and it was a hot night. I wasn't asleep. I was up reading. John was working in his study. And about 1.30, he said, let's go over and see Jeanette. And Jeanette Kell Robertson was a mutual friend who had a beautiful home in that area of Pennsylvania. She was a very close with both of us. And I said, it's 1 in the morning. And he said, she won't mind. We knocked on the door. She came to the door in a satin wrap and she hugged John and hugged me and come on in. She was cheerful about it. He said, we came to wake you up. And she said, I'm so glad you did. So then I realized I was sleepy and I laid down on the couch and uh, she suggested they go out for a little ride in a in her rowboat on the pond that she owned. So I laid down on the couch and fell asleep. And um, later, much later, after he died, she told me that when they had been out on the pond in the boat, he had talked to her about the fear of death, that he felt that he was going to die, that he could not stop it, and that he didn't want me to know. I asked Jeanette, did he think it was the cancer coming back? He had gone for a couple of checkups in the time he'd been living with me, and I was very aware that he was a recovering cancer patient. So I said, did he think the cancer was coming back? And she said, no, he didn't know what it was, but he said he, he thought something was going to happen and he couldn't control it, and it made him really sad.
0: On the afternoon of September 14th, 1982, a Tuesday, Gardner set out on his motorcycle from his home in Susquehanna, Pennsylvania to meet with a fellow writer near Binghamton. He had been up late the night before and had generally been keeping what Susan Thornton called a punishing schedule, in the weeks leading up to that day. While rounding a curve, he apparently lost control of his bike. A handlebar hit him in the chest, causing internal bleeding. He had died before he reached the hospital.
2: I can remember I was writing the book on Jesse James, and it got around 4 o'clock in Michigan, and I thought, what would John Gardner do? And I continued writing for another an hour and a half. And in kind of a coincidence that would look phony in fiction, I turned on the television and immediately there was a guy saying, novelist John Gardner died today. And there was no preamble, it was just him saying that. And that I thought of John right about the time that he died and that I turned on the television, it was announced. It was amazing. And then the rest of my evening, people calling up and asking if I'd heard about it. It was an incredible emptiness when he died, I thought. As a, we lost a really major figure in so many ways, major in so many ways as a writer, as a teacher, and just as a person.
3: He was brilliant. He was charismatic. He was gifted. He was troubled. The tragedy of his youth just continually haunted him. He, was a pain, he had a painful life. He, he could be wonderful, fun, and he was very entertaining. Um, I, I don't know how um, a person could escape that, given, given what had happened to him in his childhood.
4: His openness, his warmth, his, his correspondence was, was rich and dedicated and full and always on. And yeah, I I imagine it cost, um, you know, a bit of time and space and personal relationships, but he really thrived on that generosity. And I would say, too, that it wasn't giving back. It was just pure giving. He didn't have to give back to anyone. He had to pass on. He had to elevate. He had to provide the excitement and curiosity and, and provoke And there was a level of passion and energy and single-mindedness to his purpose with literature that
6: was astonishing. He wasn't just the smartest person in the room. He was the smartest person in any room. And it was a joy to watch his mind at play. And his kindness, you know, I mean, he was, I think, an incredible model for how, one ought to behave toward other people. He he didn't always do it perfectly in his personal life, um, but he tried and he really did it beautifully in his kind of artistic life.
5: He made you feel intelligent. (laughs) He made you feel that you were as well-read as he was. Of course, you knew you weren't. He made you feel that your ideas were worth something that your questions were interesting that your views were were of interest to him even if you were 18 years old and knew absolutely nothing so he had a way of making people feel included and engaged unusually so
0: near the end of our second and final interview session on August 28th i asked gardner about the wound a theory he proposes in On Moral Fiction, suggesting that some kind of personal experience might drive an artist's creativity. What did that mean for him, I wondered.
1: I've known so many people who were better than me, like farmers, mechanics, airplane pilots, and all kinds of stuff. I've known so many incredibly beautiful people. That are inarticulate, and I'm a spokesman. And uh, my gift is that I can, I can defend them or whatever. It's, it's not. It's not just a personal wound, you know, my running with my brother. It's. it's more than that. It's, it's. a really deep sense of uh, excuse the expression of humility, you know, like knowing that there are these these really beautiful people. The wounds more general. Maybe maybe the wound, the artist's wound, begins in specific trauma. That makes him feel bad, guilty, whatever. But it ends up as, as something much, much greater. So it's a consciousness that it can never close again. It's been opened up forever to to the beauty of it. the
0: story talks back is produced and hosted by Dave Stanton. The music you're hearing now was written and performed by Christopher Daydream. The theme music at the beginning of our show is an excerpt from Play by Merlin Twelfthold, performed by Kronos Quartet as part of their 50 for the Future series. Please subscribe to the Story Talks Back on Podbean and check us out on Instagram. See you next time.